0: We are continuing a Bible study this morning in the book of Judges, so if you want to take your Bible and head there, if you do not have the sermon notes that are in the bulletin, the ushers are moving around the auditorium right now, they'll gladly give you one of those, just raise your hand and they'll hand that to you, as we continue going through this series, we're in Judges chapter 10 and 11 this morning, talking about a gentleman by the name of Jephthah, I was reading an article and it talked about the motionless man. Maybe you've heard about this fella. There was a sign that was put out in one of the malls that was advertising this gentleman's ability to just be unmoved. And for three hours, people were trying to get him to smile, to move, to do something, by not touching him, but through their different gestures or what they'd say to him. And because right below where he was, it said, if you can make me move or smile, $100. So for several hours people tried but it didn't happen. That's because this fellow by the name of Bill Fuqua is one of those professional street entertainers that his big thing is being motionless. In fact he is in the world's uh, Guinness World Book of Records for being the man who can do nothing the longest. Now how would you like to have that? You're the person who does nothing. For a world record. You know, we joke about, we talk about, and some people make a career out of it, but it's, and it's okay for them to do it, but it's a sad thing when all of a sudden that, that commentary could be made about an individual who would come to worship, but they do nothing. Well, that's what's happening in the book of Judges, when it comes to people and their relationship with God. Time and time again, the Jews came to a point where they did nothing with God. They didn't worship Him the way they should. The whole book is written about a time period in Jewish history that after they had come through the Red Sea experience and escaping Egypt, they come into the Promised Land after their 40 years of wandering, and they defeat the enemies. They are now told by different tribes, uh, as individual tribes, to move throughout the land and to start taking your territory. Joshua had led them to campaign to break the backbone of the major armies, but now they were to take this village or that village or this village or that village for that their tribes had assigned areas, and they didn't do it and as a result what happens is they become infected with what was the religious practices what was the religious beliefs of the different people that they were supposed to have conquered and gotten out of the area and so they could start adopting such things as the practices of worshipping false gods like Baal and Ashtaroth and turning to worship services that would involve sexual activity and drunkenness and orgies and those types of things and there would be this rebellion doing nothing with God. And God would then send some type of reproof to them. He would raise some of the military powers that were surrounding Israel to come in and serve as a paddle, if you would, in spanking them, in a disciplined fashion. And he would reprove them and show them that their rebellion against him was wrong. And the people would suffer. And all of a sudden, sometimes 10 years, 6 years, 18 years, as we'll see today, and another 8 years, they would have different peoples come in and they would conquer them and they would put them as... Uh, Uh, slaves and subjection and take their property or take their incomes or their crops. And they would then in desperation cry to the Lord and say, God, we need you to to heal us, to protect us, to restore us to a place where we are blessed once again. So they would call out in repentance. But then God would send in response a judge. And that is the book of Judges. It's not people who would come and hold court. It's people who would come and be military leaders. They would come and they would judge the enemy by taking and, and moving in rebellion against them or armies against them or one on one going against them as we'll see when we get into Samson next week. And so the people would have a period of rest. They would all of a sudden start experiencing prosperity again. And so they would start experiencing their own freedoms once again. Sometimes they would last a few years, sometimes 40 years. And then there would be a, re, a repeat of what would happen. The people would start rebelling. They would drift away from God. They'd do, do nothing with Him again and start turning to the drunken's orgies once again. And God would send them then the reproof. And there would be repentance. And they, He would rescue them with another judge. And as we go through judges, there's a cycle one after another over a period of several hundred years where different judges were coming. Now we've talked about those judges that came like Othniel and Ehud we talked about Shamgar we've already in our study talked about Deborah and Barak who served together Gideon but then in chapter 10 if you look at verses 1 and 2 and verse 3 it mentions two different judges it mentions Tola and it mentions Jair and it just gives a little bit very little about them so, so little bit, but we don't know exactly what campaigns they led or what, what exactly what territory they might have conquered. And so he just gives a couple different comments about those judges. And then the most of chapter 10, 11, and 12 talks about a major judge. His name is Jephthah. He's an individual that we get a lot of information about, and a lot of you already know him. As soon as I mention his name, some of you with Bible background will say, oh, I remember him. He's the one that sacrificed his daughter in a, in a, in a uh, burnt offering sacrifice. We'll talk about that this evening, as far as the vow that he makes and what he does with his daughter. and We'll explain from that text a little bit more. But what we want to talk about tomorrow, this morning is we want to talk about a little few facts that are given about Jephthah in the very beginning of his story, chapters 10 and 11. And so it gives us some more of the details about his life, and I want to make sure you understand before you walk away today, four major facts about this man that are good for us to think about because we parallel a lot of things in his life. What experiences he had, we can have some similar experiences in a different age and a different culture. So let's look at the facts. Fact number one is this. Jephthah was a man who came from a very, very rough background. He didn't have what you and I would call a noble start. In fact, it was very innoble. Look it down in chapter 11, verse 1. It gives us just a little bit of facts about him. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. He was a son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. Gilead's wife bare him sons. His wife's sons grew up and they thrust out Jephthah and said to him, You shall not inherit in our father's house, for you are the son of a strange woman. So here's what we have. He's from the tribe of Manasseh. That is the the term Gilead for territory would include Manasseh and some of uh, Ephraim and Gad. And sometimes they would group the three together and call them Gilead. Well, Gilead is also this man's name taken from the territory. So his father's name is Gilead, uh, who is in that region, that same area. His mother's a prostitute. So he has an affair of some sort. And he's an illegitimate child. In that culture, that stigma would stick with him. That stigma stuck with Jesus Christ, if you remember. That when he was an adult, they said to him one time, well, we know who our father is, implying that Jesus' father was unknown to the Jewish crowd. And they questioned whether he was really of Joseph, and that's a whole other discussion. But it reveals for us, That in that time period, an illegitimate child would carry that stigma, though they were innocent of anything themselves, they would have that stigma. Well, Jephthah has that stigma. That he is a child that comes from from an illegitimate relationship. His dad is proper enough to bring him to his own home. To raise him in his home rather than leave him on a street with a prostitute. Brings him to his own, own home. But as we just read, in time, his dad's legitimate children want him out. In fact, it's not just the dad. It comes to a point that all the villagers want this child, this illegitimate child, taken away. If you look at verse 7, he talks about later on how they hated him, even the elders of the town, because he was an illegitimate child, and he told his dad, get rid of him. Get him out of our town. And so he was rejected and thrown out, not just by his family, but by his friends and his community, cast away. And what he does when he's cast away is he associates himself with what the Bible says, vain men, as we go down to verse 3, it talks about he fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. That's in the wilderness territory. It's in in an area that there's not much commerce, there's not much going on, and they're gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. These guys were also unacceptable sorts. Some think that they were plunderers, some think they were marauders, but they weren't accepted, they weren't looked up to, and I'll I'll give a a view of that a little bit later in the message, but he's associating himself with individuals who are not popular as well. He's running by society, he's running with the wrong crowd, because nobody else will have anything to do with him. So he's cast off. He's not an individual that if we were to say most likely to succeed, we would give him a zero on a scale of one to ten. So he's unaccepted, he's, he's basically rejected by family, by friends, his dad agrees to get him out of the house, even though his dad felt some responsibility for him. That's fact number one. Fact number two is this, God had a mission for Jephthah, God had a specific mission for this one that other people would reject, God did not. God has a job for him, and God's job for him is going to be a judge. One of those major deliverers, one of those heroic figures. In fact, this guy is considered so heroic that he's included in Hebrews chapter 11, God's hall of fame or hall of faith. And so he's an individual that God has a mission for. Nobody else would have picked him. Nobody else wanted him, but God did. God had this job for him, and even though he had a bad background, God wanted to use him. Even though he was rejected by others, he's not rejected by God Almighty. Even though he's an individual that's mistreated by his own father, by his own half-brothers and uh, townspeople, God is going to show him a great amount of grace. By the way, do you see a parallel between you and me and him? how others may not think we're, we're much, how others may have rejected us, how, in fact, some of you in your family backgrounds, you've experienced similar things like Jephthah, where your family didn't receive, they didn't, they didn't lodge you, they didn't, they didn't really show that they wanted you. Some of you grew up in those types of homes, and yet God has a plan and a purpose for you. God has a design, and God has a, a, a job for you, just like he did for Jephthah. And so we can go and we can find this being a story in other Bible cases. Do you remember Joseph of the Old Testament? Do you remember what his brothers wanted to do to him at one time? They wanted to kill him. And instead of killing him, they decided to make money, so they sold him as a slave down into Egypt. He gets down there, and when he's in Egypt, he's accepted by Potiphar until Potiphar's wife wants a little bit too much acceptance. And when she lies about him and says that he had attacked her and tried to molest her, Potiphar believes her, casts him into prison. And after he's done kindness to his brothers, they try to kill him, they sell him. After he does kindness to Potiphar, Potiphar gets him in prison. After he shows kindness to the two fellow prisoners by giving them the explanation of their dreams, the one who gets released forgets all about him. And years later, when he's finally elevated to the spot where God can use him to make a big impact, his brothers show up. And his brothers, he has the choice of showing revenge or he has the choice of forgiving them. And he forgives them and he makes this classic statement. What you have meant for evil, God has brought about good or meant for good. You have another character in scripture, same thing. Same thing, his family ignored him. In fact, when Samuel comes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the new king, Jesse parades his boys before him a couple times, but forgets all about the youngest, David. and doesn't even bring him to this point when when Samuel said, surely it's got to be one of your boys. Dad even forgets about his youngest son. We would never forget about our kids, would we? But Jesse did. Jesse forgot about him, and later on his brothers mock him and ridicule him. In fact, later on when he's an outlaw, only when his own family is put out by the community do they finally rally to him. There's another character that relates to this. Jesus Christ who came unto his own, but his own received him not. Does he understand? Does he sympathize? Does he empathize with those who are often rejected by others? And yet God loves them. God loves you, He has a plan for you. He has a mission. Now let's talk about that mission in particular for Jephthah. The mission is really important to what it, and, and comes about is what happened in chapter 10. We've got to back up a little bit and find out the setting before we gil, get into what was Jephthah's job. His job was to be a judge, we said, but how bad was it? Go all the way back to chapter 10. Look it down in verse six. In verse 6, it tells us that Israel was in a state of rebellion. It says that the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And so they rebelled. They apostatized. And as a result, God allows them to be attacked. Verse 7 talks about the attack. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hands of the children of Ammon. Now, for you to get this correct in your understanding, you have to remember, Israel is a narrow state at this time. Jordan River is running down through the middle. On the western side, the Philistines lived. On the, am I saying it right? Yeah, on the eastern side is where the Ammonites lived. And so, on that western side, God allows the Philistines to attack, and the hero that he raises in opposition to the Philistines is, it's going to be the next couple chapters. It begins with an M, and it sounds like a store, with a son at the end, okay? Sam's son, okay? (laughs) He's the one that's going to defend He's going to defend against the Philistines. Then on this side, Jephthah is raised against the Ammonites. So we're getting right now the story on this side of the Jordan River. That the Ammonites come in, and we talk about, and it says that they are there for 18 years, plundering, pillaging. In fact, they not only stay On the eastern side of the Jordan River, they will go back over into the western side and they will attack multiple tribes. And it lists the tribes where it talks about how they invade both sides of the Jordan River and even go into the land of the Ephraimites and some of the other tribes, which is important to tonight's message. So God God, uh, is, is allowing them to be spanked. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says the Jews respond. It's, it's incredible what this story, how it unfolds. It says, The children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, God, both because we have forsaken you, our God, and also served Baal. That's that false god. Look at the next verse. The Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, and in the past from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites. They they did oppress you, and you cried, and I delivered you out of their hand. And I've done it. His point is, I've done this time and time and time again. And yet, verse 13, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Isn't this amazing? Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. God says to him, I've had it. I'm done with you. I'm not going to deliver you anymore. And he basically says, if you want deliverance, watch his next phrase. If you want to be delivered, he says, go and cry unto the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of tribulation. Okay? You, you, want, to be a, you want to be in worship bed with them? Then go and ask them to bail you out. Ask Baal to bail you out. And there's no response. The people, however, realize they, they, you know, that, that this is really bad. Now, here's the big question you've got to ask. Why does God refuse to listen to a repentant person? Don't don't we often say, don't we often say, all you have to do is cry upon the Lord, and he's going to hear you. But here's a passage that he doesn't listen to them. And, And then something else happens here that kind of explains it all. The children of Israel said unto the Lord... Okay? We have sinned and do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto you, deliver us, we pray thee. Something is different about what they said in verses eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen in God's response, and what happens in verse fifteen. I think the Bible in the New Testament gives us the answer. In the New Testament it gives us an explanation of repentance. It talks about and gives us this fact. I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you had sorrow to repentance. For you are made sorry after a godly manner. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, but the sorrow of the world works death. Now if you look at that verse, here's what you've got. And this is very important that we understand this. There's two types of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow. A worldly sorrow that you can say, I'm sorry, but it means nothing to God. A godly sorrow that is real and genuine that comes before the Lord with actual repentance and then God responds. And that's the time God always responds. However, the worldly sorrow usually is this. I want to get out of my problems. I, I, I really feel bad that all of a sudden we've, we, we're in trouble with the Ammonites. So God bail us out. We're sorry. We'll never do it again. But they, they really don't mean it. They're not willing to change. They want God to change their circumstances. But they're not willing to repent within the heart. They just want to be bailed out of the problem. Do people ever do that today? Do people ever come to God and say, oh God, please fix my marriage. Oh God, fix the problems I have at work. Oh God, please get me out of trouble because I cheated on a test. Oh God, please take away this illness that's come into my life because maybe I use drugs or alcohol to an extreme that all of a sudden I've hurt my body. And so God, help me out. But is there any real desire to change and to serve the Lord? There is a regret over consequences over chastisement. Ah, it probably never happened in your home. But my kids often had worldly sorrow when I was about to discipline them. They would make promises. They would make pleads. They would like, I will never do anything bad again. I'll never do anything bad. Please don't. Yeah, right. Okay. Godly sorrow is a lot different. Godly sorrow is what God says that we do when we agree with God, if we confess and say what God says about our sin. Such as what these people said. These people said, "We deserve. We have done wrong. We have sinned. Do do whatever punishment we deserve. We deserve it, but please" Would you, would you please remove the terrible consequence of the Ammonites? You deal with us directly. We are, we are, and watch what they do. Watch what they end up doing in this passage. As it says in verse 15, they, they really admit they're sinners. We have sinned. Do unto us whatever seems good. Deliver us, we pray thee this day. And not only did they say it with words, but what did they come doing in verse 16? See what they do? Their actions all of a sudden fit their words what do they do with their false gods they put them away this is the type of conversion that all of us and repentance that says we are going one direction but when we repent we turn around and purposely change our lives to go another direction i'm headed away from god and god i've hit a brick wall Don't just remove the brick wall, but I am going to totally turn and put off the sin and come towards you. And so these individuals, what you have here, the Jews, initially God says, I'm not going to help you out. I'm not going to work with you. Why? You only have worldly sorrow. You haven't genuinely repented of your sin. You haven't genuinely said, I need you to be our Savior. And so what happens at this point, when they really repent, they admit they had sinned and deserve the consequences. Now they're taking ownership. They're not just blaming. They're not excusing. They're saying, we did it. It's our fault. We made the mess. It's not, it's not you know, somebody else's fault. They actually reject then all the other gods. They put them off. They are purposing to change in their hearts. And then they devote themselves, not only put off the gods, but it says they served the Lord. Watch God's response then. It says in verse 16, the end of the verse after they turn, his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Now he responds. Now he is going to take action. Why? There's genuine repentance on their part. Can I make a couple observations that I really want to clarify for you who are born again? It is wrong for us to say that the God of the Old Testament is a God who is always stern, a God of wrath and a God of judgment, but somehow he changed and became a God of mercy in the New Testament. That is a blatant uh, heresy that is not true. The God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. He is a God of holiness in both eras. He is a God of justice in both eras. He's a God of mercy in both eras. He didn't all of a sudden become a changed being when he sent Christ into the world. He offered mercy and grace in the Old Testament to those who would genuinely repent. And in the New Testament, he is still a God who is holy. He is still a God who will discipline, who does make judgment on those who reject him, those who rebel against him, those who do not worship him from the spirit from their heart who may just go through the pretense of church, and he says, hey, wait a minute, there are going to be many in the future who will say, Lord, Lord, have not we done all these good works, but I will say unto you, depart from me, for I never knew you. It comes to a point where we have to have that personal relationship with God Almighty, where we come and say, I need you as my personal God to be my personal Savior. And when we do that, when we come before the Lord and realize that Jesus Christ is going to forgive us of all of our sins, if we genuinely repent, and not just say, I'm sorry, but genuinely repent in our hearts to say, I don't deserve your grace. I deserve eternal punishment in hell, but I know you love me and you're offering me a gift of forgiveness. And we turn and say, Jesus, not only forgive me, but I want you to be the God I worship and the Lord of my life. Then when we have genuine repentance of that sort, then God shows that to us. And he was willing to do that in the Old Testament as well. Something else is important. God was, is, desirous to show mercy upon those who genuinely repent, even the Jews who had sinned multiple times. We cannot out-sin the grace of God if we genuinely repent. God's grace is greater than the deepest and the greatest number of our sins. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you glad that there isn't a limit? In that God doesn't say three strikes and you're out. I don't know about you, but I'm up to about my three millionth strike. And God is gracious and gracious when I repent. And you know what? Even like Israel, I can cyclically repeat some of the same sins... But if I'm genuinely repentant and determined and saying, God, I don't want to repeat that. And I don't want to, I don't want to lose my temper again. I don't want to get involved with, with uh, being critical. I don't want to get, get to, uh, into discussions or arguments where I say things that are inappropriate to people. I don't want to do that. If I am genuinely repentant and desirous to change, God will forgive me time and time and time and time again. What a great God we serve. What a magnificent God! God is gracious to bless those who reject, and that with that in mind, that's why we make this comment. God had a mission for Jephthah. That was our fact number two. He had a terrible background. God had a mission for him. Let's do fact number three. Jephthah was willing. He was willing to do this mission that God had for him. Now we jump back to chapter twelve, uh, chapter eleven. We get back into the story that, and what we have to figure out is what's going on here. Now, follow the little bit of the story. We have. Verse 5, it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead, that's the town that had thrown Jephthah out before, they went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said, Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said to them, hey, um, didn't you hate me in the past? Didn't you kick me out of my father's house or had my dad kick me out of the house? Why are you come unto me now, that you are in such distress? And the elders of the city said, We turn again to thee now, that you may go out and be our leader, and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants. And he says, Okay, if you genuinely mean it, and you're going to let me be the leader, then I'll do it. And says in verse 10, The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be our witness between us, if we, would, if we do not do according to our words, and let you be our leader, for good. And Jephthah is willing to be take on the task of being the military leader to go against the Ammonites. Now, I want you to catch something. Again, this is, this is really critical. This is one of the most difficult days that the book of Judges has described to date. One of the most wicked periods of time to date. Because if we go back into chapter 10 again and look at verse 6, there is something in verse 6 where it says that they turned to evil against God again. There is something we never find in any other text in the book of Judges. That shows how bad it gets. Look at verse 6, and you can count in your mind the number of gods that are mentioned that they turn to. It says in chapter 10, verse 6, The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. They served Baal, Ashtaroth, the gods of the Syrians, the Zidonians, the gods of the Moabites, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and forsook the Lord and served him not. Giving that background information. They have adopted more than any of their past ancestors. They have gone into paganism deeper and farther than any of the other Jews in the book of Judges. As well... When they when they did this, it's repeated a couple times. Read through the next couple verses. It's repeated. They forsook the Lord God. They forsook the Lord God. He is trying to emphasize to us, the readers, this was bad, 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 bad times. They were really, really locked into this evil. And then it goes on and describes God's response. God's anger was hot. It goes on and says that the people were vexed, they were oppressed, they are crushed, they are shattered. God is really pouring out discipline. He did it in the past with the previous six judges. We know that. But not to this extent. This was the greatest depth of evil that they got into and God's greatest response of discipline. And so it's very clear that the Israelites are in sore distress. Even though only a few of the tribes are under attack, it has spread. They are in bad, bad trouble. The worst of days, and yet God can work. In the darkest of times, his light can shine the brightest. When people live in times and eras where it looks like it's just impossible. Would you agree with me that each year that goes by it looks like it's getting worse and worse? That society is getting more corrupt? That more, as time goes by it seems like more and more evil is called good and good is called evil? Can God still work? Can God still move? Can God still, can God use us in that environment, even in bad times? The answer is absolutely positively. God can do great works even in great times of evil. In fact, notice something else. He wants to use Jephthah, and Jephthah agrees. Even though he knows this is a terrible, terrible uh, situation, I'll, I'll take the task. I'll go, I'll go into and be the light in the middle of the evil dark days. And he'll do it even though it involves helping people who did him dirty in the past. Remember, we've already read. In the past, those people, they, 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 they kicked him out of their town. They went to his dad and said, even though you brought your son into your house because you thought it was your duty to raise your son and not let him be raised on the street, we don't want that son here. We demand you get rid of your kid out of your community, out of our community. We don't want him here. Hey, listen, if you were the dad and you got the pressure to get rid of your kid, you would tell those leaders to take a hike or something more stern. And if you were the one, and and if you're the one that they're talking about, you wouldn't want anything to do with these leaders, but then you'd be shocked, would you not, that your dad would agree with them? And your brothers would agree with them? And all of them gathered together and they packed your one bag and they escorted you to the edge of the city and said, go and never come again. You know, most of us, if somebody did that to us, we would probably say, if you get in trouble, don't call me and I'm not calling you. So here they come years later, and they come to him, and they say, hey, listen, we need your help. Why is that? Well, let's go back to where we read about Jephthah before. He was with a group of vain men, it says, men that they went out with him. That passage back in verse 3, that statement tells us what happened to him. It gives us information. By the way, the word vain, some will say, yeah, that means robbers, looters. That's possible. That's possible. It could also mean, in that era, there is some writing that these are guys who didn't have employment. They didn't have land. They were empty of everything. And so people would look at them and say, hey, listen, you have no land, you have no house, you have no property, you're just worthless. And so they were people that turned towards crime, maybe. Or these guys, I think in this text, I think what they did is the same thing David did later on in in 1 Samuel. David gathered his men with him who were called the same thing. And while they were in that region, in that territory of the wilderness, David was, in and was behind the scenes. He was attacking the Philistines and protecting the Jews, but not, but not advertising it. He was the Robin Hood of his era. Is that the same thing that Jephthah was doing? That Jephthah was doing the Robin Hood thing, robbing from the Ammonites and giving it to the Jews. We don't know, but this much we know. The Gileadites now, years later, after hearing about his exploits, after hearing about what he's been doing, they think he is worthy to lead them. They think he is competent to be able to withstand the Ammonites. Something's been going on that would give them the confidence that he's the guy who can lead them against the Ammonites, Probably because he's been doing it behind the scenes. Probably because he's displayed that type of bravado. He's called the valiant man. He's called somebody who is very, very you know, strong in warrior aspects. During that period of time, he's probably going out against him. And what happens to him? They ask him if he would be the man. In fact, they end up going 80 miles out of their way to find him. So they're desperate. And he hears about it, and they come to him. Can you imagine what went through his mind when he's looking at these same guys who years before kicked him out of his home? Hmm. What he could tell them to do at this moment? Could he give them a piece of his mind at this moment? He doesn't. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't say, You're on your own, bud, and I'm going to cheer for the Ammonites. He just says, Are you sincere? Do you really mean it that you want me to come and lead? And if I lead, are you going to let me be your leader even afterwards? Or is this just a fly-by-night mission that you've got me on? And they say, no, no, we, we, really, we have confidence in you. Basically, we were wrong in the past. We thought you were a scuzz bucket. You have proven yourself to be a man of quality, character, and leadership. We need you. Would you help us out? And he agrees. He agrees to do it. He is an individual, and that last line I put up on the slides that is so critical. He is not a prisoner of his past hurts. He is not saying, I can't, I won't minister to people because they hurt me. I can't, I won't get involved because somebody hurt me in the past. I can't, I won't work at doing the task that God has given me because I've been hurt. Those hurts could be, and show up this way. I am not going to work at a marriage because I've been hurt. I'm not going to work with family relationships because some of my siblings hurt me. I am not going to forgive those classmates because they hurt me. I am not going to minister or to serve in a church because I got burnt in the past when I did it. I'm not going to try to reach out and minister to the poor because when I did that, I got in trouble for doing it. He's not that type of guy. He lives above his past. He lives above his hurts. He's an individual who is willing to serve the Lord and do what God wants him to do, even though it's the worst of days, even though it, it, in the past, the people he's going to help, they hurt him, but he's going to help them. Even though the ones he's going against, they are really, really, you know, they're, they're going to be tough the Ammonites are dumber than a rock, okay, if I can put it in kind terms. He's going to try to deal with them. He accepts the job. Here's what happens in the bulk of the chapter. He says, I'll be your leader. Now, most people assume that Jephthah's first thing he would do would lead out army and invade, attack at night, do the Robin Hood thing, and, you know, take over the castle, and, you you know, become the Errol Flynn of his day and win every battle. People think that, but that's not what he does. The first thing Jephthah does, which, is a, which gives us an idea of character, look down after he says, okay, I'm going to be your leader. It says in verse 11, Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, with the people that made him head. He uttered all the words. Verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Amnon, asking, why are you coming to fight against us? Why do you keep on coming into our land? And the king of the children of Amnon gives an answer because you guys took our land away years ago when you came up out of Egypt from Arnon to Jabok, even unto the Jordan. Now, therefore, give us back our land that your ancestors took from us. Jephthah sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Amnon, and he gives them a message. Now, what he's done is he's going to try to do diplomatic um, your know, mediation to avoid warfare and death. And get rid of the Ammonites. They refuse. And we've already read it. Jephthah then says, now wait a minute. Now wait a minute. And the bulk of the, cha- of the, next, few, the next paragraph is this. He is going to say, you're accusing us. You're saying we took your land from your ancestors. Uh, read your history book. And he's going to point out very simply, if you can read it for yourself, and let me just summarize it. He's going to say, when we came through this region, you didn't own the land. It was the Amorites that owned the land. You guys didn't have any territory. You were a minor tribe. You didn't own everything you're laying claim to. It, it, historically, what you're, the deed you're trying to say is yours, that deed never was yours. It belonged to somebody else. Then he's going to say, besides, since God has given us this land... It would be wrong for us to just abdicate it since God is the one that gave it to us and told us to keep the land. And then he's going to give one other comment that's going to be basically this way. It's been 300 years ago that we've been in this land. Squatter rights, guys. Why are you making a claim 300 years later to land that never was yours? And by, besides, our God gave it to us in this society. If our God gives it to us, it's ours. That's the way it worked in the Old Testament. Their response is, no, we don't believe you. We don't want to listen to you. And they launch an attack. And so Jephthah ends up going out and facing them in battle. And we read about it in verse 28 that all of a sudden this battle takes place. He's out there. He's got to fight. He's got to lead the troops. And howbeit, the king of the children of Amnon hearken not unto his words which he sent. The spirit of the Lord, verse 29, came upon Jephthah. He passes over Gilead, Manasseh, Mizpah, and all the ideas he's gathering troops. And then it goes on and it says, verse 32, Jephthah passed over unto the children of Amnon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And so despite this major opposition, by the way, this is an unreasonable opponent. This is somebody that will not listen. This is a political leader that doesn't have a brain in his head to understand history. Aren't you glad we don't have people like that today? (laughs) This guy is just stubborn. Here's the facts. The facts in the story, Jephthah had a very rough background. Fact number two, God had a mission for him despite his background. Fact number three, he was willing to do the mission despite the problems, the difficulties, the days. Fact number four is this. Fact number four, God enabled him to fulfill the mission. God allowed him, God granted him a victory over this major enemy. And so we just read about the spirit of the Lord comes, he gathers the troops, he goes into battle, and it's said a second time, the Lord delivered them into Jephthah's hand. God is working in this time. God is using Jephthah. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is the one who gives the victory. That does not mean Jephthah had nothing to do, but just sit there and say, God, you do it. Jephthah had to gather the troops. Jephthah had to do the diplomacy Jephthah was required by the, by the word of God by the leading of the Lord that he put some effort into this even though God was working he had to do some effort even though God promises to provide your needs you still have to work even though God says I'll answer prayers you, you and I have to pray even though God says I'll work in the lives of your kids we have to train up our kids we have human responsibility in fact let's take a step further Did Jephthah get victory via some of his own personal contributions? In the sense that, did he have anything that God could use to enable the victory? I think so. Jephthah had proven himself to be able to lead men when he's in the land of Tob. He's gathering to himself people that were leaderless. People that, people that didn't have employment who could have turned to criminality, he has made them into a force. He has shown that he has the capability to lead some unleadable people. He has shown that he's got the skills to be able to resist. He shows that he has the mental abilities to think things through, to reason things through, to even suggest we don't go to war but instead we try to find a compromise and yet war is something that he has to lead and people gather to him. So here he is an individual that God is going to enable because God is going to use his gifts, his abilities. Even God is going to use things from his background that he didn't even know about, that God was using in training. Here, let me see if I can illustrate this way. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson ends up that he's an individual who ends up years later becoming a, a world-renowned Greek professor in a conservative seminary, a Bible seminary. But when he was a young man, he's going to college. And when he first goes to college, he doesn't know the Lord at this time. He gets there at college, and he's taking certain courses, but he's got to fill in his electives. He's got to fill up the stuff to make sure that he can get enough of the uh, approved electives so he can graduate in time. So he comes, and he loves golfing. he's, He's an ardent golfer. And so he wants to be on the golf team, and there's no classes that are approved as electives that fit the schedule to help him graduate the next year or so, except for one class, Classical Greek. Who would pick Classical Greek? When he's getting a degree in business management, what is Classical Greek going to do for a salesman? So he takes the class because it's the only class that fits. As he takes the class, he really starts to enjoy it. And enjoy it more and more so that by the next year he's enjoying the Greek so much he wants to take more Greek classes that now conflict with the golf and he has to make a choice. He gives up the golfing and sticks with the Greek. And so he ends up by the time he finishes, he ends up with becoming a scholar in classical Greek. Again, he goes into his business career. Salesmen typically don't use classical Greek when making a sale. But does God ever waste moments? Mm. He gets born again. A co-worker shares Christ with him. He gets saved. He realizes he needs Jesus and he prays. And as he is reading his Bible and, and studying the Bible that next year or two, he really feels compelled by God to consider going into vocational ministry. And so he enters into seminary. Guess what seminaries we require students to learn? Greek, so that we can deal with the New Testament. This guy's got such a jump on everybody else. He breezes through. He's able to just excel in it and even expand beyond what others have expand and ends up becoming the Greek professor when he graduates. Did God waste that time in directing him providentially to take Greek? No. Did God waste time by having Jephthah in a wilderness? Where he was learning leadership skills. No. God, when God enables us, God can take the things out of our background that we never, ever thought would be of any value. Can't you see it? Can't you look back in your life and see how God has, has given you abilities and skills in circumstances, in jobs, in situations, in, in your house, re- home rearing? That you thought you would never use. This was a waste to help to, you know, mom and dad made me work and help learning how to paint and how to put up plaster and stuff like that. And that was such a waste. Except for years later, we use it on mission trips. I never would have thought that. Can't you see in your background where God takes skills that you never dreamed, but he knows you so well that he can say, I can use this in your life. I can use it if you just let me. You're not worthless. I put stuff in your life that, that I can use you. I can move in your life. So he defeats him in the battle. He did the initial battle, according to verse 32, and he, in fact, as we read through the rest of the chapter, you're going to see that what happens is not only does he beat them, okay, they're on this side of the Jordan River, and he beats them, chases them out of the area, crosses the Jordan River, keeps on going after them, chases them all the way to their own fortresses, and ends up taking 20 of their own fortresses in battle. And the passage says they lose territory, and Amnon is subdued, and God does this fabulous work through this most unlikely character that was introduced to us. Those are the simple facts of the story. That God can use the most unlikely people. Can I, can I bore you for just a couple more minutes? Where here's a, here's a letter written by a missionary to a fellow who wrote this commentary. He's writing about a friend, and he's relaying what a friend of his has written about God using unlikely people, and he's giving the illustration of Ethiopia and how this missionary is writing about some of the people he's working with in Ethiopia to work churches. The key to the exciting growth of the church in Ethiopia is the Holy Spirit. His human agents in all of this are Ethiopian evangelists. There are nine of them who share the work here. Each man is supported by his home church, which provides him a total of $20 a month to live on. All of them have families, and as you can well imagine, find it very difficult to make ends meet with such meager finances. As for the men themselves, there is little, humanly speaking, to commend them as missionaries and pastors. Without exception, they would be rejected by North American mission agencies. Their average education is grade four. Some of them have no formal Bible training. Take Andreas, for example. His wife, a former barmaid, His four children, one of whom is a hunchback, he preaches and teaches at a remote point two full days' journey from the city of Banga. Last time I went to his church, I attended a baptism of 88 believers. Or take Arsh, a young man of about 25 years of age. He has six fingers on his hand. He's well-educated by local standards, having completed grade six, as well as gotten some Bible training. His wife has tuberculosis. His church too is growing with 24 baptized last month while many more are becoming to belief. Can God use the most unlikely characters? Absolutely. Our God is so, so gracious that God can use any of us. Now here's the question that I would have. If I were sitting in a pew, I would ask this, Preacher, what was it about Jephthah that prompted God to use him? It was grace. It's grace. I understand that. But did Jephthah do anything? Was he anything that that got God to say, "You're usable"? I I think that he was. I think these are the facts that stand out in the text. Despite his past, despite his imperfections, and tonight we're going to look at he's an imperfect man by the way he handles a couple things. But despite all that, he's a believer. He is a genuine believer. Of all the judges in the book of Judges, he uses the personal name of God, capital L-O-R-D, more than any other other of them. So even though he's been rejected by his dad, even though he's been rejected by the villagers, even though the people call out to God, G-O-D at times, not L-O-R-D, an impersonal name when they call out for repentance, not Jephthah. Jephthah, when he talks about God, is always using that personal name indicating we are on a one-to-one basis. He's an individual who is Old Testament, a New Testament term for Old Testament, he's born again. Despite his background, despite his past, despite rejection of others, he did not reject a relationship with God, nor did God reject a relationship with him. He came to a place where he called upon God to be his personal Savior, to forgive him of his sins and to give him a relationship with God Almighty. A relationship that would go into eternity, a relationship that would guarantee being in, he would have called it paradise. He's a believer. New Testament terminology, he got born again. New Testament terminology, he got saved. New Testament terminology, he accepted Christ as his Savior. He could point to a time, a period, a a place, some, some era of his life where he could say, I repented of my sins knowing that I could not make my way into heaven. I called upon God, Jesus Christ, knowing that he and he alone can get me into heaven. And I asked him to forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future, and to give me eternal life so I could have a relationship with him. It's called what Romans says, calling upon the name of the Lord so that you are saved. Believing with all your heart that he is God and that he is risen from the dead and able to forgive you. He's a believer. But not only that, there's something else that I think we would be remiss if we didn't point this out. He was one who communed with God. I see that in this text. Like in chapter 11, verse 11, when they come and they say, Jephthah, come on, come on, be our leader. They make the promise. They say, Yo, you can." we make this vow before God. Look what it says. That Jephthah uttered all these words before the Lord. Jephthah believed God was listening to him. He went and had personal conversations with the Lord that even as he's being asked to be the king, he goes to the Lord God and talks to the Lord God about this specific task that's at hand. He's a prayer warrior. He's given to prayer. By the way, and I don't agree with his vow, as we'll see this evening, but he does make this vow. He believes that he has an opportunity to be able to speak to God about personal matters. He's one who's communing with God. He's a believer. He's an individual who communes with God. Something else, he's concerned for others. A genuine concern. Even about those who did him bad, did him dirty, he's concerned about them. Those are the human character traits that God would see, that God would say, you are a usable individual. Therefore, the Spirit of God comes upon him and gives him the victory. Not because he deserved it, but because he was an individual that God could use as evidenced by his belief and his behavior and his attitude towards others. That he was a usable vessel. The question is are you? Are you an individual who are a believer? Are you an individual who says, yes, I do know and I talk to the Lord so that I can understand and discern his guidance, his leading? I take major decisions to him. Are you an individual who is genuinely concerned about other people that you are interested in ministering in some way, shape, or form to other people? You know that you can't do it of your own strength. You know that you you can't do it successfully without the Lord, but you're willing, you're desirous. You want to be a vessel used in the master's hand. That's a Jephthah. That's this individual who is willing to say he's being used. Now, here's what we've got from the message. I've given you one sentence in four points. Let me just add a couple different prepositions and comments to bring it all together. Even though Jephthah had a very rough background, even though Jephthah had a very rough background, God had a mission for Jephthah, who was willing to do the mission. Therefore, God enabled him to fulfill the task. That's this message. In one sentence. Now let's just do one thing with it. Let's replace your name with Jephthah's. And see how real it is. Even though your name had a very rough background, God had a mission for you. You who were willing to do the mission, therefore God enabled your name to fulfill the task. The truth of the matter is not, what about God? The truth of the matter is, what about you? Are you willing? Oh, I know God has a mission for you. He has a mission for me. I can just sit here real quickly and start saying, here's the missions that God has for us. The missions that include sharing the gospel with family and friends, helping others via praying for them on a regular basis. The mission of raising your kids to love and serve the Lord, to have a godly example of a strong marriage For your kids, your grandkids, and those around you. And yet without the Lord, you're not going to be able to succeed. To minister to the missionaries via prayer. Via encouraging letters. That's a mission God has given you. That God can use you as. To help minister in the church body where you serve, if it be this church. To help contribute in the teaching, in the ministering, in the the outreach of the church. To assist, to minister to the widows, the poor, the orphans to do some ministry to help those individuals out, possibly to teach God's word to some class, to help conduct even ministries to the elderly who are shut in like at a rest home. That's a ministry. That's a mission that God has placed upon some. And you say, but I can't do it. Yes, he can, with the grace of God. To do a Bible study with your classmates, or maybe do a Bible study with neighbors, or maybe even getting involved in a Bible study and going to the addiction center here in town that has invited us to come and to teach on a a couple times a month, to people who want to hear. The idea of ministering to the physical needs of the ill, the afflicted. And we're limited, I understand. We can't do the medical practices, but can we assist them at their homes, at their places? For some of you, has God called any of you men to possibly consider to be a preacher? You say, well, I don't have the skill set. Join the crowd. Join the crowd that God says, I will use somebody willing and take what they have and mold them into a masterpiece that I can use for my glory. To be a missionary, to go to a different land, to share the word, to reach the unreached. God can use you. God has a mission for you. The difference is whether you're willing to be used of God in some of these ways. Jephthah was. God did. What about you? We come to a point in our service where it's a time of consideration. It's a time of reflection. It's a time of response to the Lord. And sometimes we sing, sometimes we just pray this morning. Here's a prayer that we can sing. Talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm willing. I am willing to be used. I am willing to to go if you want me to go. I am willing to minister in this community to, to seek out. Maybe my mission field would be the shut-ins. Maybe my mission field is classmates. Maybe my mission field of ministering is within this church body, but I'm willing. I'm willing to do it. And God, I don't have much, but with you, little is much when you're in it. I invite you to sing this prayer with me of dedication, of surrender to the Lord, to be willing, if this is from your heart, genuinely this morning.